This is a Chronicle podcast, bringing you ideas in the service of medicine. From the Chronicle podcast system, this is the NPC podcast of the National Pharmaceutical Congress for May 31, 2023. The NPC podcast is where we discuss and consider the purpose, process and people of the pharma industry, and today, we'll continue the healthcare conversation. This program is presented in cooperation with Impress, Canada's next-generation commercial partner. The industry is rapidly evolving, and Impress is designed to help you evolve with it. Learn more about Impress-tailored best-in-class solutions at www.impress.com. Our guest today is Bridget Nolay, the President and CEO of Roche Canada. Bridget will join your hosts, Jim, Mark, and Mitch. And to start today's conversation at the end of May, here's Mitch Shannon, CEO of Chronicle Companies. Welcome back to the NPC podcast from the National Pharmaceutical Congress. I'm your podcast co-host, Mitch Shannon, up here in our historic podcast, Gondola. There's so much history in this space, and much of it is in the form of graffiti left behind by our predecessors. Apparently, there was a person named Kilroy who, I guess, had a few problems. Let's say hello to a man with no problems to speak of, Mr. Mark McElwain, the pharmaceutical industry consultant and life sciences expert. Mark, what would you say causes people to write puzzling comments in public spaces? You know, sure, the thrill is probably about coming back a few years later and seeing your name there. Not that I would ever do such a thing, but... I guess these days, Kilroy would just use social media. Exactly. I thought you were going to say something about leaving your mark, Mark, but we won't go there at all. That's up to you. Well, wait a minute. I do have to bow to the artists who took their life in their hands, tagging the gondola with a Habs logo at some point, because this is Leafs territory. And, you know, that's the essence of true art. So anyway, interesting. Sort of thing you'd expect from a Sabres fan. But joining us again, as you can hear in the gondola, is someone often described as a magic marker in a world of broken crayons, James Shea, General Manager at the Council for Continuing Pharmaceutical Education in Montreal. Jim, what do you have to say to our listeners that should never be written anywhere, especially on a wall? Well, I'll tell you what, I think it's all about parent books. There are no instructions. You know, my 30 year old son found his old Nerf sword in the basement this past weekend. Shame on me and proceeded to chase his 28-year-old brother out of the house and into the backyard, where the five-year-old and two-year-old who lived behind us cheered them on. I saw the darkness in the parents' eyes as they witnessed the event, implications on their next three decades. And I'll tell you what, there are no words to describe the look of lost hope. Ah, well, we'll seek out those words. But meanwhile, we are your graffiti-quoting podcast hosts known as Jim, Mark, and Mitch because all the bold brand names have already been taken, such as Banksy or Bullseye Barbecue Sauce or New Dodge Hornet. Joining us on the podcast for the first time is Brigitte Nolette. Brigitte, welcome. Thank you very much. So you're coming up on your first full year as president and CEO of Roche Canada, following in the path of our friend Ronnie Miller. So without speculating on the size of the golf shoes that you're filling, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Roche and the current vision of Roche as you go forward? I'd be happy to. And just to be clear, my feet are pretty big all on their own. And I literally am a size 11 women's shoe, so I'm not very tall, but I have huge feet. So we begin there. But you're right. I began the transition into the role of president and CEO of Roche Canada about a year ago. And then once my children finished school, 
we were in Belgium just before coming back to Canada, where I was the general manager. So when the girls finished school, the family moved back to Canada. So we arrived late last July. You know, it's been a really wonderful experience to date. I will add to your point, I am the first female CEO at Roche Canada as well, which I think in and of itself speaks to where we're headed in terms of diversity and inclusion. And I can only say I'm the first female CEO, but I'm certainly not going to be the last one. So I think that there's a lot ahead. Now, you asked about Roche and our current vision. Roche is a Swiss-based company here at Roche Canada, of course, and globally, we're one of the largest biotech companies with differentiated medicines and oncology, immunology, infectious diseases, ophthalmology, and diseases of the central nervous system. We're also very lucky. We have partners in diagnostics and in diabetes care as well. So we're a leader in in vitro diagnostics and tissue-based cancer diagnostics, as well as a front runner in diabetes management. So really, when you look at us, it's the Roche Group. It's about our passion for science and our commitment to relentlessly pursuing the impossible for patients. And that's what's really led us to being this world leader in pharmaceutical in vitro diagnostics and diabetes care management. And what we like to really emphasize in our discussions is we're really that end-to-end in healthcare, from diagnosis to treatment to monitoring that full gamut. And what I appreciated, I have to tell you, when I left Canada, it was late 2013, and we were roughly 400 Canadian employees. And I've come back, as I mentioned last year, and we're now nearly 2,000 employees in Canada. So it's been this tremendous investment and growth in Canada in terms of different global functions coming to Canada, as well as the local roles. So I think what's really wonderful is that you can have a career within Roche that is global in nature without having to leave Canada, which is fantastic evolution. And last year, we placed as a great place to work by Glassdoor, both in 2021 and in 2022. So, you know, I know we'll talk a little bit about culture and leadership in this discussion. And I think, you know, one of the most important things in an organization are the employees and the culture that you build. And we're just really proud of that Glassdoor ranking because it's the employees themselves who evaluate their place of employment. So fantastic. That's amazing. That's Jim Shea here. So you've had several roles, leadership roles within Rolsch, that's locally and globally, but you've also had the unique experience of being on staff at IMC also. So how have these experiences shaped your leadership style and what lessons have you learned that you apply to your role as CEO of Roche Canada right now? That's a great question, especially coming out of the lockdown phase of COVID, you know, what did we learn about ourselves during those times? And what have I learned throughout my career? So you're right, Jim, I worked at what was RxD at the time and is now Innovative Medicines Canada. I also worked in the federal government for several years. And so I learned a few years back, I was reading a Harvard Business Review article that talked about tri-sector leadership. And so I define myself as a tri-sector leader, somebody who understands the not-for-profit sector, the public sector, and the private sector, who's worked in all three and can really bring people together around common issues and common solutions. And I think, you know, coming back to Canada, we may talk about it in a few minutes, there are lots of challenges within our healthcare systems across the country, right? We're at a very fragile point with our healthcare systems, but we're also at a very exciting turning point. And so that ability to bring people together to really create around common solutions together, I think is something I really learned in all of my different roles that I've had. And it's what is common and I bring together in every leadership role I have. I will say one of my big learnings through COVID was 
the importance of authentic and empathetic leadership. And I'm just going to say, often as women leaders, we are called emotional, right? I don't know yourselves having gone through your career, but I know for myself, there are times, many times when I've been considered an emotional leader. And, you know, what I learned in COVID is that it was actually my emotions that helped lead our organization through COVID at that time. It was leading with empathy. It was understanding that people were balancing family pressures and work pressures quite literally crashing in the same day, in the same moment, in their house, children running around them as they're trying to have work calls. It was about understanding how to help people through fear for moments that were really scary for all of us, where we didn't have the answers. We didn't know how long things would last. We didn't know where COVID was leading us. And so that ability to really be an authentic leader and a leader with empathy, those are emotions. And so I think for me, it really allowed me to be truly who I am as a leader. So there's no more, you know, there's no more facade. There's no more trying to please. I learned that I am a strong and good enough leader as I am as an authentic leader. And that's actually what employees and colleagues and stakeholders are looking for. They're looking for transparency and they're looking for honest, empathetic conversations. That's just excellent super leadership there. So let's switch over to Roche itself. It's known for innovative drug development, diagnostics, a number of things, and you know, committed to patient-centric care for sure. I've seen that over the history. Can you speak to some specific initiatives or programs that Roche Canada has implemented to support this approach and walk the talk? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when I went over to my global role, I was responsible for global patient group relations. I got to learn a lot about understanding different perspectives and the perspectives of those who live with diseases, right? And I really got to understand our company's commitment to patient inclusivity, as you said, right? That concept of nothing for patients without patients. And, you know, one of the things that I was really proud of coming back to Canada is to see how the Canadian organization has taken this value and really moved forward with different approaches. One of the most interesting ones is the creation of patient councils that has been done here within Roche Canada. So it's working with people who are living with diseases or their caregivers and really understanding what matters to patients. And so, you know, it's a regularized council We go to them for advice. We go to them to talk through different topics. They challenge us with thinking. And it really just helps us understand how we can think about our development, how we can think about our patient support programs, how we can think about all of the education efforts, and generally, even how we think about our internal culture and how we speak about patient inclusivity. They challenge us and help us open our minds on all of these different facets. So It's just been such a great example of Roche Canada really living that value, that importance of nothing for patients without patients. Yeah, truly a great culture. Brigitte, it's Mark. So Roche has been a leader in the development of precision medicine. I wonder if you could speak to some of the specific initiatives in this field that Roche is currently working on and how you see this field evolving in the coming years. Yeah, it's truly an exciting time to be in the life sciences, I have to tell you. I mean, we are seeing the type of science that we probably only dreamed of 20 years ago. It probably felt like science fiction 20 years ago. 
And to your point, it's becoming more and more real. And the promise of precision medicine across a number of different therapeutic areas is becoming more and more of reality. We're now understanding genetic differences between individuals, right? And we're tailoring treatments to the right person at the right time. We're understanding efficacy and safety of medicines. We're understanding how they can be improved and how that improvement also reduces healthcare costs. So I think that promise of precision medicine is one that's important for patients. It's one that's important for science and medicine. It's one that's important for our healthcare systems into the future. And I think, you know, one of the biggest examples that we can see is thinking about tumor agnostic. If you think about oncology, and let me try to break it down. Right now, we tend to treat oncology as cancer of a body part, don't we? So there's breast cancer, there's colon cancer, there's stomach cancer. Well, what we're learning through tumor agnostic medicine, for example, an example of precision medicine, is it's about understanding the genetic makeup of the tumor, no matter where it is in your body. And it's about understanding that if we can treat that tumor, that tumor expression, then we are actually, no matter where it is, if it's HER2, not in the breast, but in the stomach, that we're able to really think about how we can make a difference for that person. So it will no longer be about treating a body part. It will be about treating the tumor and the genetic expression of that tumor, which is very precise for the individual and will lead to better results, better outcomes, a better investment for the money that's spent on these treatments. And at the end of the day, a better quality of life for those who are experiencing that disease. So it's a really nice example of how things are moving from a precision medicine point of view. I think maybe, Mark, if you allow me, the other element to talk about beyond science, it's also how our healthcare systems are evolving towards precision medicine. And I think we've talked a lot at Roche, and I know there's a lot of dialogue externally as well within our healthcare systems about the importance of health data and real world evidence. And I also think it's important to understand how that's going to play a role, a really big role in precision medicine. And we think about the fact that, you know, we have healthcare systems where we're still faxing different referrals, we're still faxing information between offices. And at the end of the day, what I saw in Europe is that when we can connect health data, when we can aggregate, safely create a space where information is shared, then we are able to start putting together health systems that are truly responding to the needs in the healthcare system, where we start to understand where investments are being made. Are they being made in the right place? Is clinical care improving because a physician is not spending so much time on administration and yet learning very quickly through the health data how to support and optimize patient care, where we see stronger care coming through, and where health data also helps us with stronger research, more targeted endpoints, faster research, and will ultimately lead to an overarching, when you put all of that together, a stronger and resilient set of healthcare systems across the country. So I really am encouraged by everything I've heard starting in 2023 around the efforts in health data. And I really do encourage us as a life sciences sector and all of our governments. And there are a lot of experts and stakeholders in the Canadian landscape in AI and machine learning that understand where all of this could come together to truly support the evolution of our healthcare systems. So for me, precision medicine, to boil it down, there's the scientific part, which is exciting. And there's the healthcare system evolution part, which is equally important and exciting. Well, thanks. That really sets the challenge. So we haven't talked yet about access 
And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the key challenges that Roche is currently facing in bringing new therapies to market and getting them paid for. Yeah, and I don't think it's just Roche. I think when we look back and look at opportunities in Canada, right, and I've seen different systems in place in Europe and globally, and I've come back and actually seen what I've observed is that it's taking longer for Canadians to access their medicines than I did before I left. And so the question for me is, for example, why is it in Belgium that a Belgian can have access to the same medicine within one year after EMA approval, and yet it's taking us in Canada two to three years after Health Canada approval? Why is there that difference for the same medicines that we're seeing within our sectors? And so for me, I think the key message is we have in Canada all of the necessary building blocks to help advance life sciences to help advance our sector, to really improve patient outcomes, to build that best-in-class healthcare system that is, once again, the envy of the world. And we have that ability to energize our economy. And at the end of the day, when we think about our healthcare systems, patients are waiting, to your point, they are waiting too long to access new medicines and new innovations, and twice as long as those who are living in developed European countries. And so the question becomes, what can we do together that will really make a difference. And I do believe that we all are recognizing within the life sciences sector, but also our government stakeholders and our not-for-profit and broader policy stakeholders, we recognize that we could come together like we did in COVID. We could come together recognizing where the challenges are and really problem solve together on this topic. We just talked about data. I think health data is a big part of one of the enablers that can help us understand how investments in healthcare are going to be able to be understood and how we're going to work together on new approaches to access. But I think at the end of the day, it is about whether we see healthcare as an investment, whether we see healthcare funding as an important part of our society. And I do believe that that is what we see now. I think we have seen a tremendous amount of investment announcements that have come in the past few months, which really encourage us. And I think that, you know, for access to medicines to change, and they need to change because Canadians deserve to have access to the medicines in an efficient, thoughtful manner, it's going to take a mindset of investing in healthcare. And then it's going to take a mindset of partnering and collaborating together because we are all part of the challenge and we're all part of the solutions. And then it's going to take us coming together and understanding where the data is leading us and then thinking innovatively about how we might be able to think about reimbursement, to think about conditional listings, to think about real world evidence and all of these other opportunities that we're seeing evolve in Europe that we can bring here. I hope that answers your question. You're listening to Brigitte Nolet, President and CEO of Roche Canada here on the NPC podcast. So as you discussed with Jim a few minutes ago, Brigitte, pre-Roche, you were in government affairs at RX&D, which many will remember as the earlier incarnation of IMC. Let me ask you, what did you take away from those encounters with Canadian stakeholders that you applied in your other global stops along your career, such as the UK and Switzerland? You know, I think the biggest element for me, when you work at a trade association, you're supporting multiple companies, you're supporting multiple perspectives. And you really do learn as a person, a staff person in that environment, you learn how to bring people together and find common solutions together. And you can't solve every issue, but you can learn to work as a team to prioritize and to focus 
and to really simplify how you need to move forward. I think those are some of the big learnings that I took with me, you know, a board table of up to 20 companies and then a membership that is even broader. How do you bring focus and real impact? And how do you work with your government stakeholders, your patient group stakeholders, your policy stakeholders to find really practical, common solutions? Those are some of the elements that I took with me into my global and European roles. Interesting. That's Jim back again. Let's continue down the personal question lane here. You're in an industry where the usual academic pathway is a science background of some kind, often topped off with a postgraduate degree, mostly MBAs for senior management. And at a time where business leaders are all texting and talking and tweeting about communication being the most important skill, you are in fact a rarity, again, an English major out of Waterloo. Did you ever, early on in your life, ever envision yourself working in the life sciences, let alone leading one of the largest multinational companies stationed here in Canada? Yeah, <laughs> I think the easy answer is no, I didn't envision it when in my early 20s. I think what I did know is I began my university studies with an English major in mind. I then found a passion in sociology. And at Waterloo, there's also the School of Social Work. And so I then began to study both. And the studies in social work and the co-op program at the University of Waterloo led me to Health Canada and some early internships at Health Canada. And that's how I got to understand the health sector and the importance of the public sector and how they work within the health sector. And, you know, I'm going to date myself. It was the late 90s. And it was when we were understanding a different kind of pandemic, an epidemic, which was the HIV AIDS epidemic. And we were understanding how to prevent through education, how to prevent the spread. And so I joined this group that was working in the prevention, the education and prevention of HIV and AIDS. And it was just such a powerful time as a young woman starting her career to see this kind of work and to see the purpose that is involved. And then I have to tell you from there, I moved into different roles in government. I got fascinated by politics. I worked then in some political roles in government. And then I fell sick. And in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with arthritis, with psoriatic arthritis. And I think it was in that moment where I began to understand what true healthcare delivery meant, right? It took me six months to see a rheumatologist. I literally could not make fists with my hands. They were so swollen. I could not type. I could not write. And so I began to really understand, you know, when I should have been out in the byward market in Ottawa and spending my evenings with friends, I was going through a different kind of challenge and understanding what my health meant. And so it was just like this interesting cross-section of seeing the rheumatologist, having to go through that experience, and then um, beginning some new medicines at that time that really helped bring a quality of life back to me at such an early age. And oddly enough, the industry association, without even knowing what I was going through personally, came asking if I'd consider joining them. And it was almost a personal calling, if that makes sense to you. I was going through something very important to me personally, and then professionally, the industry that was actually allowing me to have my life back was inviting me to join them. And so I joined the industry with that in mind. Always, I have to tell you with the thought that I was going to go back and I got really interested in law. 
And I thought for sure I would go back and study law. I was studying for my LSATs and the whole thing. And I think one element just led to another and I never went back. But I think if life were taking me back 30 years or in a different life, I might have been a lawyer, if I was honest. Wow. Well, that's a one heck of a lane. And I'm going to ask you to describe even more traffic within that lane. So at <laughs> Roche, Roche has been recognized for its commitment to diversity and inclusion. You talked about that at the beginning. And I believe that you're even personally involved in supporting women leaders in pharma outside of your activity at work at Roche. Can you speak of some of the specific initiatives or programs that Roche has implemented to support the diversity and inclusive workplace and what impact you personally have, may have, or hope to have with these initiatives as you go along? And maybe even, like I said, you're outside of Roche too and your activities with others, what you're going to be able to do with the industry as a whole, but maybe even outside of pharma. Yeah, it's a great and important topic. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, for any organization, there is nothing more important than the culture that we create for our colleagues. And organizations are successful when colleagues are happy, when they are feeling respected, when they are feeling trusted, and when there is an open culture that allows them to be their authentic selves at work and to develop genuine relationships. And so for me, it is really important, not only for the happiness of individuals, but also a competitive advantage that if you can bring everyone's whole self to your work, the innovations, the creativity, the camaraderie that's created is only going to make stronger solutions at the end of the day. And so, you know, for me, it's both a social element. It's important for us as society, but it's also equally important for us in a professional setting. And so you're right. It's a passion for me. I think at Roche, there is a lot we're doing. I think we can continue to improve and grow, but certainly we are very proud supporters of different employee resource groups that we have. We have self-started teams across our organization. You know, examples would be our Out Proud and Equal Network. So our open network, which is an LGBTQ plus group and our allies coming together to really understand and foster an inclusive workplace for all sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. We also have Roche Ability, which promotes the inclusion of people with disability, both visible and non-visible, always ensuring that people can reach their full potential. We have Roche for Racial Equality, what we call ROAR, which is wonderful. It's part of the Umbrella Global Diversity Network, and really it's about promoting and establishing that global unity across race and ethnicity-focused communities and bringing that sense of equality and equality to our work. And then you mentioned it as well. We have a number of efforts around ensuring that we are clear on gender diversity as well and supporting more women to come through as leaders. And that ranges from really thinking about the gender pay equity studies that we did. We did one recently in 21 where we really looked at salaries and pay because this is a big issue for women in the workforce and really seeing that we had no significant difference in pay between men and women doing similar jobs, which is very important to us. Also thinking about our international women's network. So at Roche, we have more than 25 networks and chapters across the company that really support the professional development, the advancement of women. And I was really, you know, to your point about my own involvement, when I was in Basel and leading the health policy team is when I was asked to actually lead our first 
women's professional network within our large organization in Basel, within global product strategy. And it really opened my eyes to a number of these issues that we're now working through both in Canada and globally around how to encourage and advance women in different leadership roles. And so not only did I lead that group, but I got involved with a healthcare business women's association in Basel in that chapter. And the HBA, of course, is a large global organization whose mandate is to advance women in life sciences. And so I've been really blessed to be part of the efforts across the Basel chapter, followed it in the UK, was a proud member of the Brussels chapter that established itself a few years ago and participated in our European summits. And then we now see the Canadian chapter of the HBA really forming and really taking shape. We just had our first face-to-face event on International Women's Day on March 8th, which was a fabulous kind of kickoff to the efforts. We're seeing the Montreal chapter come alive as well. So I think it's such an important topic, diversity and inclusion and gender diversity as well. And when we think about our life sciences sector, what I will tell you is that when I joined RXND and I looked around that board, this was the board of IMC now, but back then there was one woman on the board. And when I went to our annual general meeting, you were there, Jim. Remember, they invited us onto the stage as a board. And it was the first time where you could visually see that we were more women than men on that board. And it was just such a powerful moment for me. I think because I was going back to 2002 and remembering what I saw. And then you advance 20 years and you see the progress. So, you know, I think that the life sciences sector has a lot to offer in science. It also has a lot to offer in terms of societal progress. And I think we should be very proud of the membership that we're seeing and the progress that we're seeing. It's not over and there's still a lot to do. Don't get me wrong, but I think we have to take that moment to pause and really recognize how far we've come. Well, all I can say is keep working that lane. It's a great lane to be in. (laughs) Brigitte, it's Mark again. So Roche was also early to the issue of environmental sustainability. I wonder if you could tell our listeners about some initiative that talks to reducing your environmental footprint. Sure. You know, maybe the first thing I'll start with global and then talk a little bit about employee expectations as well, right? You know, I'm really proud of the fact that Roche has ranked one of the top three most sustainable healthcare companies in the Dow Jones Sustainability Indexes for the past 14 years running. So it's a really big issue for us. And it's a part of our corporate scorecard, right? We are absolutely evaluated on our progress on an annual basis. And what you will know is that, or at least when I started at Roche Canada, we were in a different building on Meadowpine and we moved to this building on Mississauga Road. I think we'll be celebrating 10 years in this building this fall. And we really took the time to renovate the space in a way that allowed us to achieve the LEED gold certification. So that's the Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. So to get that certification for the design's overall stewardship of energy, resources, a reduction of waste, of making choices based on the impact of the environment, and we're reapplying for our certification, in fact, this year. And I think for us, as I understand it, when we moved to the building, we really made it a core priority to decommission our previous building as well in an environmentally sustainable way, recycling and repurposing as much as possible. And as a result of those efforts, and it's a real kudos to the team at that time, but based on those efforts, we made the Clean 50 Top 15 Projects list, 
which is really about recognizing green achievements in business across Canada. And listen, I could go through a list of things that we're doing within the building, right? Light harvesting technology, really thinking about environmentally friendly ammonia-based air conditioning systems. We could talk about the fact that we're moving our fleet towards EV, electric vehicles, the fact that we're in the midst of putting a number of chargers into our parking spaces now to encourage that use. But I think, you know, one of the most interesting things that I have learned coming back to this role is that, you know, really here at Roche Canada, one of the privileges that I have is to lead for one of the first times, actually, almost all generations of colleagues, right? From their 20s all the way through to retirement age, we have the entire kind of diversity of our colleagues. And I say this to you because, you know, I hosted a number of coffee chats. I hosted a number of get to know you sessions as I was making my way back. And I think to your question on sustainability, this is no longer a choice. This is an expectation of employees, of maybe our younger generations of employees, but there is an absolute consideration for them. They choose to work in companies that believe that being sustainable, environmentally sustainable, about having thoughtful cultures of diversity and inclusion, that these are the places where they want to work. So I think for all of us in the life sciences and in the industry as leaders going into the future, making an effort in clean tech, making an effort in sustainability, this is about employee engagement. This is about retention of employees because they are not only choosing companies based on their own interests and their own career progressions, they are choosing companies based on values and the values that they want to see in the future. So for me, it's just been such a fascinating conversation to have with employees and to learn that sustainability is a core value for many of our employees going into the future. Okay, that's great. So as we wind down our podcast here, Brigitte, we're going to invite you to play our word association game. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. So just go ahead and say the first thing that comes to mind. And, you know, it doesn't have to be one word, but... No pressure. Anyway, in response to each of the following phrases or words. So are you ready? I'm going to try. Okay. Innovation. Patient access to new medicines. Healthcare marketing. Mm, compliance. Leadership. Empathy. Okay. Diversity. Inclusivity. Sustainability. Collaboration and expectation. And patient centricity. Nothing for patients without patients. Well, I'll tell you, we were secretly giving you points and again, mega points for that. An amazing. So we're going to break the bank on this one, gentlemen. I think so. Yes. I guess so. Pull out the wheelbarrow and dump a lot of points on that. So finally, it's time to put your soothsayer's hat on and enter our prognostication corner, where we spell corner with a K because our interview style has been compared to a processed cheese. And what bold cracker barrel of predictions are you willing to make about the life sciences industry going forward in the next 12 to 24 months or even further if you decide to go that far? I'm going to go back to a bit of a conversation we had a few minutes ago. I would like to think that if we came together in two years from now and had this conversation again, that we would see a set of healthcare systems across the country that are truly integrating information and are making decisions and investments, believe in investing in healthcare and believe that integrated health data systems is part of the infrastructure 
required for modern healthcare systems to exist, to be resilient, to be sustainable. And I think at the end of the day, we know because we can see it in other jurisdictions, that sense of how we work within data-driven healthcare systems is going to be critical. And what I think is really interesting, and I didn't realize it until I came back to Canada, is the excellence we have in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And we have literally global gold standard in this space. And for us to really evolve our healthcare systems, it's going to take health data. It's going to take our excellence in AI applied safely, ethically, thoughtfully to our health data systems to pull the insights that we need to help us with stronger research. We have such strong researchers in Canada. We have such strong promise within our research institutions, their links to our hospitals, their links to our clinicians. And I think Canada has the secret sauce. If we can put it together, AI with health data, and be able to demonstrate an evolved modern set of healthcare systems that makes decisions to invest in healthcare based on information and using that intelligent system to move us forward, I think that we will only see stronger healthcare. We'll see stronger patient outcomes for our citizens. We're going to see sustainable healthcare systems, and we're going to see stronger research coming out of Canada, which means a stronger set of investments and a stronger economy. So that's my big wish for us when we come back together is that we're on that path. You were talking about roads earlier, that we're on that path, that we are forging the path, and that we're seeing real advancement in that space. Well, that was a well-crafted answer. Thank you. Meanwhile, thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights. I have to say your passion for the mission you and your Roche Canada team are on comes across loud and clear, and it's really inspiring. So look forward to having you back with us again. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for having me today. And I look forward to next time. Thank you. And to all of you out there in podcast land, thanks for listening. We will speak with you soon. If you've got questions for Bridget, just send an email to health at chronicle.org. And remember that we always invite your comments about today's conversation. If you dare, attach your question as a voice clip, you might just become part of a future episode. We hope you enjoyed today's NPC podcast. If you did, please like it, rate it, recommend it, and make a point of sharing it with your network. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, or, to keep things simple, just ask your smart device to play the National Pharmaceutical Congress podcast on Audible, Spotify, Amazon Music or TuneIn Radio. The NPC podcast is presented in cooperation with Impress, Canada's next-generation commercial partner, Check them out at www.impress.com. I'm your announcer, Leona Void, speaking. This podcast was produced by Jeremy Visser, with help from Amy Ray Elder. Research for this program came from John Evans. The musical theme is performed as always by the NPC Podcast Orchestra, under the direction of maestro Logan Milbrook. We'll be back again to speak with you next week.